Greetings and welcome to the 5 by your favorite source for rapid-fire board game reviews. This episode, Mason gets into the swing of the season with Panic Mansion. Ruth takes us to build the whimsical worlds of the little prince, Make Me a Planet. I discuss Sushi Go. Ruel takes us on a peaceful journey to Takedo, and Meeple Lady explains the power of math in Sentient. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Panic Mansion. Panic Mansion, sold as Shaky Manor in the US for some weird reason, is one of those dexterity games that you're either very good at or embarrassingly bad at. I, unsurprisingly, am the latter, but I love it anyway, which I think is the sign of a good game. Panic Mansion is also somewhat divisive. This is not for people who hate silly fun. But Mason, you say, I've listened to the 5 by for a while now, and you very firmly established that you hate silly fun. So what gives? And I think that's a fair question. What gives here is the difference between the subjective horrors of everybody votes to see which answer is the funniest, which are the games I hate the most in the world, and the totally objective experience of attempting to shake a wooden box of ghosts and snakes faster than your friends. Panic Mansion is undeniably a gimmick, but it's a gimmick that's also a very good and fun game. So what's the gimmick? Panic Mansion is a box of boxes. Each player gets what looks like a shallow lid divided up into rooms, sort of like ice cool. It honestly might be easier if you just hit pause here and go Google it, because I don't really want to spend five minutes explaining to you what this game looks like, and I think it's necessary for you to understand what we're talking about. Are you back? Great. So you've got your cardboard mansion, and into it you drop some meeples and other stuff. Tiny wooden ghosts, snakes, eyeballs, treasure chests, detectives, and some spiders. You're going to flip over a card from the deck and shake your box back and forth until you get the objects on the card into the room of the color shown on top of the draw deck. It's not complicated, but it's very, very hard. There's now usually about two minutes of frantic shaking and swearing, at least by me, until someone says, done, and puts their box back on the table. They were the first person to get a ghost, an eyeball, the detective, and three treasures into the purple room. There are, of course, a bunch of variants and probably endless house rules you could try to make the game more or less challenging dependent on the people you're playing it with. Like most of my favorite dexterity games, this relies heavily on your ability to recognize a pattern and then take a physical action based on that pattern. There's some brilliant engineering and obviously extensive playtesting under the hood here. The doorways between rooms are just small enough for the snakes to get stuck, which is absolutely maddening. The spiders are plastic and weigh less than all the other pieces, making them move at a different speed than the rest of the objects when the box shakes. The eyeballs are, of course, round and love to roll right into rooms where they're very much not wanted. The four mansion boxes fit perfectly back into the game box, so there's no wasted space. You could buy two copies and play with up to eight people if you wanted. I guess theoretically you could play with even more people in a giant tournament setting, but even at four players, the game is prone to ties, so you need to figure out a signaling system when someone was done. We play that the box has to be back on the table and your hands off of it before you call, DONE! The eyeball's tendency to drift sometimes means that a player will get set lightning fast only to have an eye roll right into the room after they've put their box down. It's highly amusing. We play dexterity games pretty seriously around here, but there's no reason that you have to. Panic Mansion fits beautifully into a hyper-competitive game night, but you can also play it cooperatively with kids, or adults I suppose, who don't like to lose. There's not a lot of online discussion about Panic Mansion, but I also think it's a great fit for tournaments at cons, especially in teams. We tried it in teams, with each partner holding one side of the box, and it was extra ridiculous. If you wanted to really go nuts, you could run a couple of sets as a corporate icebreaker with players holding all four sides of the box. This does also lead to one of the possible issues you may have with Panic Mansion. The player boxes are open on the top. If you have kids, there's a high likelihood that all of the pieces in the box will get tossed up in the air during an especially exciting round. 
thought about this problem a little bit, and I do wish that Blue Orange sold clear plastic covers for the mansion boxes. A possible solution would be to shrink wrap them with the bits inside, but I'd welcome other suggestions. I really want to play this with our little cousins, but I also really don't want to lose all my pieces behind their couch. You may already be familiar with the designers of Panic Mansion. Osgur Granerud is well known for Flamme Rouge, and with Daniel Peterson, previously did both Frog Riders and the excellent 13 Days, The Cuban Missile Crisis, which in my opinion is the best version of the Twilight Struggle light genre. The Blue Orange Games production is stellar as always, and this box fits very nicely on the shelf next to their other dexterity games like Dr. Eureka, Kaboom, or Maki Stock. Maki, Maki Stack? Maki Stack? I don't know, whatever. You don't have a shelf of Blue Orange dexterity games? You probably should, they're super fun. Panic Mansion slash Shaky Manor is mm, about $20 online, and I think it's a great value. It's not a puzzle you're ever going to solve. It's not a skill you're ever going to master. And there is a world of homespun variants to be discovered and explored. The fun math on Panic Mansion checks out, folks. So, who should buy Panic Mansion? People who can take a silly dexterity game seriously. People who love mildly spooky haunted houses. People who want a light and fun game night break that isn't social deduction and people who can shake a box lid full of stuff back and forth for about 60 seconds. I give Panic Mansion 8 out of 8 luridly carpeted Victorian rooms in a cardboard estate. I'm Mason Weaver, you can find me on Twitter at Discount Compost. Hello 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, reminiscing about a children's book that I actually first read while in college. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry's novella, The Little Prince, was first published in 1943, but the book has continued over the years to teach readers worldwide that one sees it clearly only with the heart, anything essential is invisible to the eyes. The author himself illustrated the fable in a charmingly distinctive style that lovers of the book hold close to their hearts. Such a classic work is ripe with inspiration, and sure enough, more than one game has been published based in this world of the young prince, the rose he loves, and the various characters he meets on his planet-hopping journey. The game that I adore is The Little Prince Make Me a Planet, designed by Antoine Bauza and Bruno Cathala. This 2013 release has players drafting tiles to make a planet best suited to the whims and desires of the characters living there. Over the course of 16 rounds, players draft tiles that when put together form the image of a planet, with the corner tiles featuring four characters from the novella. Scoring is almost entirely dependent on what characters the player has. The player with the most volcanoes at the end will lose some points, but otherwise players only earn points for meeting the needs of the characters they've drafted, each of whom wants to see a particular feature or set of features. Thus, the timing of the character drafts throughout the game is really interesting. The start player for a round actually selects which type of tile to draft, be it an interior piece, one of two types of edge piece that give the planet their important curvature, or those all-important characters. If the characters aren't drafted to the latter stages of the game, then everyone has to hedge their bets on what features to collect. But if they're drafted too early, then everybody knows exactly how you're going to score, and thus exactly how to stop you. And make no mistake, despite the charming source material and art, this game gets mean. Other players will be trying to screw you over, and the draft gives them more than one way to do so. Mainly because drafting doesn't happen in table order. You see, once the start player has selected a type of tile and laid out the same number as there are players, they'll pick one. So far, very normal. But then they pick who gets to choose next. Once that next player chooses their tile, they then decide who gets next pick, and so on. The very last player is stuck with whatever tile everyone else didn't take, but then they'll get to be start player for the next round, picking a type of tile and starting all over. 
This means there's not just the potential to hate draft, to take a tile that suits you less but that you know an opponent wants more, but you can also just manipulate the turn order to hope that a player gets to choose late enough that the tile that's perfect for them isn't there anymore. Luckily, the game is short enough at 20 or 25 minutes that this doesn't become hateful, and since the last player gets to become start player, it's really hard for everyone to just be piling on one person. One of the reasons I adore Make Me a Planet is that it's a drafting game that actually works really well with two players. The two player roles have the start player picking a type of tile as normal, but then they take three of those and look at them secretly. They'll then place them in front of their opponent with one face down tile and two face up. The opponent gets first choice before the start player then takes one of the remaining tiles and discards the other. It's a fascinating exercise as you and your opponent try to outthink each other. Did they place the best tile? face down to hide it from me? Or did they want me to think that's what they did and put a tile that's going to destroy my plans face down? Or is it the first one? The back and forth with two players is exquisite and leaves you anguished as you think yourself out of every decision you've made while your opponent just smirks at you across the table. But with the game being short, it doesn't get to be too much. And with the roles reversing each turn, you both have equal opportunity to torment the other. The meanness that the game can produce in all player counts is tempered somewhat by the game's appearance. Make Me a Planet uses the original art from the novella to populate the tiles, so it just feels right to fans while looking charmingly naive to those not familiar with the source material. The tiles are large enough and the graphic design clear enough that players can tell across the table what everyone else has, making it easy to consider what someone might need or want. Components-wise, the game's just 80 tiles and 5 scoring tokens, and they, along with the insert they live in, are perfectly serviceable. The score track itself is actually printed on the back of the box, which is fine as you only need it at the end and saves having to have another component on the table. The Little Prince Make Me a Planet is a charming looking package hiding a tense drafting game that will leave you cursing your opponents. With a short playtime, unless your group takes a long time to pick tiles, it's a good start or finish to game night, and if adults can temper the meanness a bit, it'll play well with kids. Though I will say an 8 year old was one of my cruelest opponents, so that might not actually be necessary. I originally bought the game mainly for the theme, but the fantastic spin on drafting makes it one I keep coming back to years later. And so for that reason, I highly recommend trying it out. And until next time, when I'm not curled up with a book, you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. When starting a podcast, a lot of consideration must be given to the name. And while technically accurate, we quickly decided that naming our show the Phil Walker Harding Fan Club was too long of a name, so we went with the 5 by. Given that everyone on the show is a self-professed Walker Harding fan, I'm a bit surprised that Sushi Go has gone this long without being covered, likely due more to its age and ubiquity in the market rather than any lack of worthiness. Sushi Go was originally released back in 2013, and many of us have our game right copies sitting awkwardly on our game shelves in its odd-shaped tin. Sushi Go makes for an excellent introduction to both Walker Harding games, but also to card drafting. In Sushi Go, we are allegedly at a conveyor belt sushi restaurant, trying to have the best meal. This is simulated by everyone having a starting hand of cards. They pick one, and then pass the rest to the player on their left. And then everyone reveals what they've picked to the whole group. Then they can look at the hand that was passed to them, and repeat the process, until all the cards from that hand have been played. And I have to admit, from the standpoint of mechanisms to theme consistency, it works. 
even down to the use of the chopstick cards to take an extra dish from the hand you currently have, simulating some extra reach gain by using those chopsticks. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Once the final cards have been played, that round is over, and it's time to see who ate the best. The obvious way to tell if you've had the most satisfying meal of sushi is of course by scoring up what you've had each round. Each card gives you a certain number of points, and many work together for more points. Sashimi is delicious, but not very filling, so you have to eat three dishes of it to get that really nice full feeling for 10 points. Nigiri is certainly more filling and worthwhile on its own, but if you pair it with wasabi, now that's even better. Tempura shrimp are so good that you're obviously going to want two orders. And while of course you won't dream of eating that pudding until the end of the meal, you should probably grab it now because who knows if there will be any later. Once everyone has scored their meal so far, you wipe the plates clean, so to speak, except for the puddings which are saved for the end, and play continues for two more rounds played exactly the same. Sushi Go is both a tactical and strategic game. You know what your starting hand is, and you know it'll come back around to you. What are the odds, based on what you've seen, that you'll be able to get all three sashimi that you need to score those 10 points for an average of 3.3 points per card? Or should you grab the wasabi you have in the hopes that a squid nigiri comes around for 9 points, or an average of 4.5 points per card? Based on what the others are doing, should you get in the maki race for 6 points? But if it takes you 3 cards to win, that's only 2 points per card played. These are usually the things I'm considering when looking at my first hand and deciding how to proceed, then tactically deciding based off of later hands how I want to further my game. Speaking of looking at my hand, the art is adorable. I just try not to think too much about the cute smiling sushi pieces that I'm theoretically about to eat. While what your opponents are taking and doing certainly affects how your game goes, this is not really a direct conflict game, which makes Sushi Go an excellent gateway game that usually doesn't end with hurt feelings. And the simple rules also make it an excellent introduction at drafting. But what if you want... more? Well, as luck has it, Sushi Go Party was released back in 2016. This is a much larger, and yet still sadly tin, box version of the game, with many different cards you can add in. The cards are organized around certain types like rolls, appetizers, desserts, and specials. There's also now a special scoreboard with score markers, and chits to slot in to fill out the deck properly, and to let everyone know what the special abilities are for each card type. Sushi Go Party is certainly a the same but more type of expansion for anyone who has grown tired of regular Sushi Go, but I never intend to get rid of my original Sushi Go deck as it's much more portable and while Party gives you tons of options and suggested setups, you still have to select and mix the cards before playing and then separate the cards back into their different types for storage, neither of which are great when you want a fast game while waiting for a meal. A Sushi Go Party is the perfect game for a game night when you want to either experiment with different options or to use one of the heavier or meaner suggested decks with your friends. So that's Sushi Go and to some extent Sushi Go Party, a light, quick, fun, introductory drafting game that works great with families and gamers, and it's bigger but more flexible, heavier, and sometimes meaner sibling. I personally feel both are great and will gladly keep both. As for which I would recommend, I guess it depends on what you're looking for. Given their low price point, I don't see how you could go wrong with either, but it is a game that I feel most gamers should own. If you have any further questions or comments about Sushi Go, you're welcome to reach me on Twitter, at MyGrizzly. Sit back and relax as we travel from Kyoto to Edo on the Tokaido Road. 
visiting temples, shopping for souvenirs, and encountering fellow travelers. Along the way, we'll take time to paint lush landscapes, refresh ourselves in the natural hot springs, and eat delicious meals. Designed by Antoine Bauza, with art by Nai Day, and published by Funforge in 2012, Tokaido is a set collection game based on the famous road in Japan. Players try to have the most enriching experience during their travels. You'll stop at various locations collecting cards and scoring points. There are endgame bonuses based on your cards and achievements. Before you set off on your journey, you'll choose a character. Each has a unique ability, like Hiroshige's free panorama card at every inn, or Mitsukuni's additional points for hot spring and achievement cards. On your turn, move to any open location ahead of you. Most locations only have one space, and each location is repeated several times on the board. You may not enter a location that's taken by another player's meeple, unless there's an additional open spot. Movement is determined by whomever's in last place. They'll move to an open spot of their choice, then the person who's now last is next. There are eight types of locations, where you'll collect cards and or perform actions. For example, if you're at the temple, you donate one to three coins and score accordingly. When players reach an inn, it's a mandatory stop for everybody. Choose a meal, pay for it, and score points. Play continues until all players reach the fifth and final inn. Endgame bonuses are awarded for various achievements, from the player who's donated the most, to whoever spent the most on food. The player with the most points wins. Tokaido is a masterpiece of a gateway game, weaving its theme neatly into gameplay. It's easy to teach to new players and experienced gamers. It's not a brain burner, and we're not here to math away trying to figure out the most optimal move. We're here to chillax, eat good food, and leisurely stroll to our destination. It's vacation, right? I love that there's so many ways to score, collecting souvenirs at the village, painting panoramas, visiting the hot springs, donating at the temple, encountering merchants or samurais, and eating meals at the inns. For new players, it might seem like a lot, especially with so many stacks of little cards everywhere, but it really isn't. Most of the times, it's go to a spot, collect a card, and score points. But don't take Tokaido's light and easy gameplay to mean it's simplistic or without nuance. On nearly every turn, your move affects your fellow travelers, and more often than not, you'll be blocking another player. If you see your buddy is low on money and you're next to move, you can move to the only open spot on the farm. Or if you know your friend needs to paint that final piece of the sea panorama, you might move your meeple there, preventing them from finishing their painting. A wicked smile is optional, of course. These subtle, almost passive-aggressive interactions are what'll appeal to veteran gamers. It's not an in-your-face, conflict-heavy game, but it manages to sneak in similar elements within its laid-back play. When teaching new players, I like reminding them that their character has a unique ability, since this can help them focus on certain locations to get additional points. Take Umige, for instance. She gets an additional point and coin every time she stops on an encounter location. If you're Umege, then you'll try to land on those spots often. Or, if you're Saseyako, anytime you buy two souvenirs, you get a third for free. The village will be the spot you're aiming for. Of course, you're not required to stick to those spots that benefit your character. You can go anywhere you want. So even if painting isn't your specialty, you can be the first to finish a panorama and score additional points for the achievement. The artwork and components in Tokaido are top-notch, matching the game's theme perfectly. There's a good mix of men and women characters, and I love that there's an older and a younger character represented here. And while there weren't any Japanese game designers or artists involved with Tokaido, Funforge made a wise choice in consulting with Nobuaki Takerubi for help with what they call cultural validation. I feel like the game presented its Japanese theme respectfully, 
and I'd like to think that Taka Ruby had a hand in this. One thing I do wish they'd done differently, though, was the art. While it is beautiful and the use of white space is a welcome change, it's not totally functional, especially for those with any kind of vision issues. Icons are too small on the board, and the scoring tokens are too similar in color. For more experienced gamers, Tokaido may be a one-and-done game. While pleasant, it's still a light game. For them, I'd recommend the Crossroads expansion. This adds a choice to every space and allows players to earn more abilities through the expansion cards. For example, at the farm, you'll choose between gaining three coins or gambling two of your own coins with a chance to win or lose more. At the temple, you'll choose to donate money for victory points or buy an amulet card with a one-time ability, like stopping on a space that's occupied by another player. It's a must-have expansion for hobby gamers, since it adds a lot of gamery touches without bogging the game down with new mechanisms. In fact, it'd be nice if later editions incorporate the expansion into the base game and simply make it the advanced variant. Tokaido has rightfully earned its place among the top gateway games. It's one that I'm happy to play whenever I want to unwind and recall the relaxing times of past vacations. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5x. Thanks for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Hi, this is Meepa Lady, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about Sentient. Sentient, which came out in 2017 from Renegade Games, is designed by J. Alex Kevern. His games, which fall into the 30 to 60 minute category, are surprisingly pretty meaty. My friends and I have enjoyed his previous games such as Gold West and World's Fair 1893, and Sentient definitely does not disappoint. Sentient is a 2-4 player game that plays in about an hour, set in a future world of technological revolution. The game comes with no board, just a deck of cards, investor tokens, a slim player board under which players place the cards they select, and wooden pawns and colorful dice with numbers on it. The artwork is gorgeous and futuristic. Sentient is a clever, set collection, area control, dice manipulation game that sometimes involves math. I seriously squealed and said, that's foil, when one particular card came out in my first play of it. Foil, in case you're wondering, is a mnemonic for calculating equations. It stands for first, outside, inside, last. Something I seriously hadn't encountered for many, many, many years. So yes, there are a couple of these types of formulas on the cards in Sentient. The game is played over three rounds, in which each player has four actions total. At the start of each round, the factory is set up in the middle of the play area. Four cards, which are called bots in the game, are laid out in between five different investor tokens. Five one-point victory chits are also placed underneath each investor token. The game comes with five investor token types. Military, Industry, Service, Information, and Transport. Each bot card also falls under one of these five categories. Players then roll their dice and place each dice on the matching color spot of their player board. When players take their turns, they place their agent and as many assistant pawns as they want to in the factory above a bot card in between the investor tokens. The player then moves the bot card into their player board in any open spot between two dice. As the bot card is placed, symbols on the top corners of the bot card can manipulate the dice to the left and right of it, either by increasing, decreasing, or not changing the dice value. Players can also use any unused assistance to turn off this effect by covering the symbol on the bot card. And this is where the math comes in. I absolutely love this part of the game. It's super clever. 
Across the top of each bot card is an equation. At the end of the round, and after each player has four bot cards underneath their player board, and all the dice have been manipulated, the bot card is scored based on if the equation is fulfilled. I can't think of another game that has such in-your-face math other than Leaving Earth. So now let's go back to the factory. After everyone takes their four turns and bot cards are scored, you look to see who has the majority sitting in between the investor token. The person who has the most pieces between their agents and assistants will receive the token. Since your pieces are sitting in between two investor tokens, they count for both sides. The player with the second most majority will get the one victory point chit. At the end of the game, the investor tokens will be multipliers for however many cards of that same bot card type you pick up. If you collect two information tokens, each of the information cards you've received throughout the three rounds will be worth two points each. So in addition to ensuring the bot card will manipulate your dice toward a favorable outcome, you'll also have to decide which bot card at the factory will boost end-of-game scoring from investor tokens you've already picked up. If you're picking up a bunch of military bot cards, then you should place your agents and pawns to secure military investor tokens. But then maybe the card underneath the military token will negatively affect your dice. Tough decisions all around. Lastly, each player board already has a built-in investor token to start with, which gives you a direction to go toward the game. Any cards you have at the end of the game are worth zero points if you don't have a matching investor token for it. For a game that plays in about an hour, Sentient is mathy, crunchy, and one giant puzzle. It's totally right up my alley and hits my brain like in all the right places. But if you don't like calculating math problems, then this game wouldn't be for you. This game can also bring out AP in some players because it adds solving math formulas to indecision. You can't really plan too much for your next turn because the card that you need might not be in the factory when it's your turn again. For two to three players, there's obviously a higher chance that the card will still be there when it gets back to you. There isn't much downtime with a 2P game, but the gameplay is much more open. The sweet spot seems to be at three players. If you like it to be a little bit more punishing, stick with four players. Overall, this is a fantastic game that you can just bust out when you have about 45 minutes and they're looking for something that's not a filler game. And that's sentient. This has been Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Meeple Lady, and on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you for listening to the 5 by if you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at 5 by Games, like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games, or join our BGG Guild, number 2810. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or follow all the links on 5bygames.com. The 5 by is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at insidevoicesnetwork.com.